All right, well, good morning, Kettlebrook family. It's, it's, uh, if we haven't met, my name is Dan Kelm. I'm the site pastor for our Kewaskum location of Kettlebrook Church. And uh, this summer we've had just a series of, of guest speakers. So it's actually kind of nice for me to be uh, back up speaking again. And the thing I wanted to start with this morning was I was going to ask if you ever have that where you remember something like totally random out of nowhere and you're like, oh my word. So just, just this week I had that exact experience and I was sitting in my office and all of a sudden I had a memory from like 20 years ago when I was a camp counselor when I was like 18, 19 years old. And there was this little boy that had us laughing all week long. Uh, he, was, he was a little eight-year-old African-American boy. That's important to the story because he sounded like a miniature Louis Armstrong. And he was so funny. And you know how it goes with boys at camp. It's like, you know, they, they don't shower at all. And so by like halfway through the week, this kid was so stinky that his counselor, Joe, was like, hey, hey, Darnell. <laughs> He's like, maybe, uh, maybe today you should take a shower. And Darnell was just like, I know. I know. I smell funky. <laughs> and by the end of the week, I remember we were, it was a group of us counselors that were all sitting together in the dining hall. And Joe's like, oh man, the funniest thing happened with Darnell today. He came running over. He's like, Joe, Joe, I gotta tell you what happened. He's like, I have to go to the bathroom real bad, real bad. So I ran to the bathroom and I pushed open the stall and I dropped my pants and I sat on somebody. <laughs> That's what I thought of this week. (laughs) Sometimes we make decisions we regret, (laughs) right? Uh, Unfortunately, they're not always that funny. Um, And and, and the decisions we regret, uh, I think, usually uh, lead often to more severe consequences, and especially those decisions uh, that go directly against God's will for our lives. And and actually, I wanted to take a moment here to, to read you someone's journal entry uh, and, it, and it's a little raw, but don't worry, this is, uh, it's not private. They published this, and I think that was for the sake of um, having others and wanting others to learn from their mistakes. And so it's written as a prayer to God after they made some pretty horrible decisions that they came to regret. And if you're up for it, I actually want to invite you to pray this with me as I read this. So let's pray. Compassionate and loving God. Please have mercy on me. I feel stained by the terrible things I've done. Please wash off of me the garbage I've been in. I desperately want to be clean again. Trust me, I know the shameful actions I did. I'm haunted by it day and night. You're the one I've sinned against and did this terrible thing. You saw it all, and you're right. It was horrible. Nothing like you'd want from me. I know I was born a sinner from the very second I came to life, and I know you deserve better, that you want me to live from a place of truth in my heart. Please teach me how to do this. Teach me at the deepest level. Purify me in only the way you can, and I'll be clean again. Wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow. When you look at me, please don't look at my sin. Erase it from ever existing. Please give me a new pure heart, dear God, one that's filled with clean thoughts and good desires. Please don't push me away or or kick me out from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from my life. I want to experience the joy of living in your saving grace. And I know if I experience that, I'll teach others, other people who've sinned like I have. I'll teach them about you 
who you are, what you've done, what you're still doing. And if they get it, I know they'll leave the garbage in their lives and turn to you. God, you alone can rescue me, and I'll always sing of your amazingness. Help, help me open my eyes and open my mouth, and I'll praise you wherever I go. You don't want religion. It'd be a lot easier if that's all it took. But I know you're not interested in empty rituals. What you want is my spirit to be humble, letting myself be broken before you, having a heart that's broken and saddened by my sin, having a heart that cries out to you. And I know, God, you won't ignore me if I come to you like that. So if it pleases you, please bring blessing to your people. Protect us and restore us. It's by knowing your goodness that out of our lives will bring the things that you desire, lives of sacrifice. Amen. That's a pretty intense prayer, right? I think my question is, what would bring someone to write something like this, to pray something like this? And I guess another question is, have you ever prayed something like this? I think the truth is uh, that at some point in our life, I think each of us, needs to pray a prayer like this. And not because we've done something that's so horrendous in the world's eyes, but because we understand how much our sin grieves God and, 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 and how much it derails us from God's best in our lives. And that we would desire to be restored to God and realigned with his will and, and when, when we get off track. And that prayer was written by uh, somebody that got really off track. It's King David's prayer from Psalm 51, just a little modernized. Uh, And the little note above Psalm 51 says this. Written after David the prophet had come to inform David of God's judgment against him because of his adultery with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah, her husband. And our specific text this morning is actually looking at that confrontation between David and Nathan. And so actually, I'd like you guys to open up with me to 2 Samuel 12, uh, which is on page 222 of, those, of our Red Bibles. And if you'd like one of the Red Bibles, feel free to wave at Stan or Amy. They'd love to, to bring one over to you. And so 2 Samuel 12, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 14. So just last week, uh, Kim shared with us King David's excitement as he brought the ark back to Jerusalem, his passion to build a temple for God, his desire to say yes to God's leading, uh, and God's covenant with David to establish his throne forever. Things were up, (laughs) and David was leading the charge for God's kingdom. So what happened? Uh, Well, what happened, I think, is what can happen to the best of us. Uh, We lose sight of God's vision and God's kingdom. We kind of start to focus on things below, and we lose sight of things above. We focus our vision on our vision and our kingdom. And so this is kind of then how this played out in David's life. As king, he didn't go off to war with the army like he should have. And in his boredom, he starts peeping at a beautiful woman from the vantage point of his roof, He lusts after her, inquires about her, has her come visit. He commits adultery with her. She gets pregnant, and ultimately he kills her husband in an attempt to cover it all up. And the woman, of course, is Bathsheba, and her husband is Uriah. So how did did David get there? I think the answer is one little step at a time. 
And with each little step, David became more and more blinded by his own sin. And so our passage of scripture starts with Nathan, uh, God's prophet, after the prophet Samuel, who comes to confront David in a unique way. And so let's take a look at 2 Samuel 12, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 6 to start with. Then the Lord, the Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep and cat or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Well, the king was known for making judgments or rulings in civil cases, and Nathan frames this story actually in that way. Um, a famous and familiar instance of this is, is Solomon, David's son, um, when he makes a ruling between two mothers over a dispute, who's, which one's claiming a baby as their own. Uh, and I know it says that David gets angry, but uh, David wasn't known for anger. So I don't think Nathan was using this tactic to sort of tiptoe around David. I think Nathan just knew that we have such good vision when it comes to recognizing the sin in someone else uh, that the best way for David to see the truth of his sin would be to frame it as if it was someone else he was talking about. And in one sense, uh, David's not wrong for getting angry. Uh, Here, someone poor and defenseless, almost powerless in that society is abused, and the wrongdoer appears to have gotten away with it unless someone powerful steps in. And so David's angry. David wants justice. And actually, just this week, I read an article that, that gave me the exact same reaction that David had. It, it broke me and made me livid, uh, righteously angry, and even, honestly, a little unrighteously angry. Uh, it's a true story written by a single dad, and it was about the new digital world that we live in and how his 12-year-old daughter and her 11-year-old friend were being groomed by sex traffickers through their Snapchat accounts. And these girls were effectively brainwashed by this one individual in particular, but there was nothing that could be done about it because of the holes in the legal system. And for a time, this dad had to pretty much make his daughter hate him by taking away every online device that you could think of. And, but it was the only way that he could protect her from this guy as well as herself. And in the end, after every legal avenue failed and this terrible person was released back into the public, this guy showed up to the dad's work just to smile at him and gloat. And the dad nearly lost it, obviously, Um, but he knew there was nothing he could do. If he he went to to jail for attacking this guy, who would take care of his daughter? And so to this day, that man is out free 
trying to groom other girls as along with continuing to try to groom this guy's daughter. And I was like, David, um, I was, I was reading this and everything in me was like, that man deserves to die. That was exactly what David said when he heard about this great injustice. Look at verses five and six again. Nathan burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And now that David was sufficiently angry, the beginning of verse 7 says this. Then Nathan said to David, you are that man. Nathan's story was about a poor man that had only a single ewe lamb compared to a rich man that had everything and it's no irony that, the, that Nathan says the lamb was like a daughter to him because Bathsheba's name means daughter of an oath. David, who had everything, robbed from the one who had nothing or little, Uriah. And, and he did it boldly and brazenly and without remorse. And in his anger to this story from Nathan, David pronounces an, an impartial judgment on himself. <laughs> This man deserves to die. So let's continue reading uh, verses 7 through 9. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all of this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. And though, through the prophet Nathan, the, the Lord reveals his full displeasure with David and what David's done. And get this, it's less about David's specific sin and more about David's contempt of God himself, about David's attitude toward the Lord. God says, you despised me in my word. So God called David out of the shepherd's field and onto the throne. He took all the blessings that had been given to King Saul and gave them to David a nobody. And he called David not only to a kingdom, but covenanted with him, saying David's throne would be eternal. And David treated all of that like it was nothing, like it meant nothing. And God lets David know that there are going to be consequences for his sin. So let's uh, finish reading the passage. Let's read verses 10 through 14. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house, because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. 
But because by doing this you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. And that's where we're going to pause. Sin always has consequences. And this point marks the decline of David's kingdom. He's traded something amazing for something less. But unlike King Saul, who refused to repent when he was confronted by the prophet Samuel, David confesses to the prophet Nathan, and and his sin is removed. And David's prayer from Psalm 51 that, that we read earlier is further proof of David's brokenness over his sin. And even though David earlier pronounced this judgment of death upon himself when he said that man deserves to die. Uh, Nathan says that David won't die. But sin brings death. And God says that David's son will die. And the rest of the passage kind of goes on and, and talks about that. And so I think there's a number of ways that we can actually look at this passage. Um, and, and I think there's, there's really kind of three main sections that this can be broken into. We, we have confrontation, we have confession, and then we have consequence. Confrontation, confession, consequence. And in each section, we can ask, who is God? Uh, essentially, how does he reveal himself? Uh, what has God done? And who are we? You know, how do we see ourselves in light of this text? And then what do we do? And so the first main section is confrontation. And Nathan needs to confront David because David's been blinded by his own sin. And David had Nathan in his life to point this out to him. And actually, more specifically, he had the word of the Lord spoken through Nathan to point this out to him, to confront him. And in that question, who is God and how does he reveal himself, we see that God is the loving confronter who desires to bring David back to him. And then what does God do? Well, he brings conviction of sin. He leads David to a place to be broken by his own sin. God still does this today, uh, certainly through his word, scripture, as well as other believers, uh, but he specifically takes that role in our lives through the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says in John's gospel, when he's talking about the Holy Spirit, he says, when he comes, the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And that's one of the roles the Holy Spirit still takes in our lives. The same role that Nathan had in David's to point out our blind spots and bring us back to God. And this goes much deeper than our conscience. It's not our conscience at all. In fact, it's, it, it's a consciousness entirely apart from our own. One that's holy, entirely different, set apart. See, David was called to be set apart But he lost sight of God's mission. And in doing that, he lost sight of everything else. And I think this holds true for us, and that's also how we see ourselves in light of this text. When we lose sight of God's mission, we lose sight of everything else. And if you and I are not passionate for God's mission, our hearts will become passionate for something else. We'll stray from God, which is one of the most dangerous things we can do, which is why we need and desperately need to be listening to the Holy Spirit in our lives. And when we feel the Holy Spirit speaking into our lives, confronting us and convicting us of sin, we need to be more like King David than King Saul. David received God's rebuke. And that leads us to the second major section, I think, that we see in this scripture, which is confession. 
We see it briefly mentioned here, but uh, David's confession is definitely more explicit in Psalm 51. And to be honest, confessing our sins because of something the Holy Spirit's confronted with us with is, isn't always easy. Years ago, uh, I had made a series of, of bad decisions, and I had been justifying my sin, and, and God had, had been trying to nudge me throughout that time, trying to nudge me, and I wasn't listening. But it finally got to a point where the Holy Spirit just needed to fully confront me, to convict me, of, the, uh, of convict my heart of the sin that I had been hiding and justifying and, and the way he did that was to kind of just touch, touch that spot right here. Uh, and I remember just feeling sick to my stomach and losing my appetite and feeling the weight of potential consequences, losing sleep, having constant anxiety. And on the one hand, I knew that I could turn to God directly and confess to him. And I knew that because it's one of the reasons was David's prayer in Psalm 51, as well as what the Apostle John says in 1 John 1, 9, which is, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. But there was also more that I needed to do, uh, more confessing that the Holy Spirit wanted me to do because I could tell that just weight and that feeling didn't go away. I needed to make some phone calls and meet with a person that I had directly wronged. And I actually had to do it twice because I chickened out the first time and didn't confess everything. Uh, but as soon as I had, God's peace returned to me. And that pressure just had been released. And actually, years later, I kind of felt it come back a little bit. And I realized that the Holy Spirit wanted me now to confess this to other people in my life. And as soon as I did that, again, I felt fully restored. And I think that fits with what James says in James 5.16. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Confessing our sins, our failings to God and to others, uh, and maybe either those we've wronged or either those who love us and will pray for us, is powerful and effective. It's the right heart that David talks about in Psalm 51. So in this section, who is God? Well, God is the one who desires us to be restored. And what does he do? He listens to us and receives our confession. Who are we? We're the ones who are being given the opportunity to confess and be restored. And what do we do? Well, hopefully, we take the opportunity to humble ourselves and be broken over our sin and receive God's restoration. The last section I think that we see in the section of Scripture in Second Samuel is consequence. In one sense, it might seem like God's consequence to David is, uh, is extreme and that he's being punished by God. Um, through Nathan, God said that David's house will be plagued by violence, that someone from his own family would bring ruin to him, and that he'll lose pretty much everything and everyone. And as harsh as all that sounds... All of that is not God's punishment of, on David. All of that is simply the natural consequence of what he's done. His children are going to be raised with the knowledge of what their father did. And with that knowledge, his children choose to do the same things. It even says that David's enemies will know what he did and scorn God. 
So if I decide to go drag racing on, a, on the streets of Kewaskum at midnight, and it just so happens, believe it or not, a deer crosses my path so that it causes me to fly off the road and crash into a tree and become paralyzed from the waist down, all of that is not God's punishment on me. Even if I got a speeding ticket on top of it all, after it was all said and done, that's still not God punishing me. That's the natural consequence of my own sin. My own poor choice. Our choices have consequences, and so did David's. But more than that, for sin to be truly taken away and atoned for, there needs to be a blood sacrifice. We know that from the beginning of the Bible all the way in Genesis. And in this case, it was David's son. And so in this section, who is God? He's the righteous judge. And what does he do? He brings judgment, but also forgiveness. And who are we? Well, in David's words, we are that man who deserves to die. We're the guilty. And what do we do? We accept God's judgment because it's right and true and just. But we can also receive his atonement because he's merciful and gracious. See, I don't think it's, it's a coincidence that Nathan's story, it was a lamb that was killed. And I don't think that it's a coincidence that for our sin, and for sin to be atoned for, a son of David needed to die. And that's, this is where the part of the story for us is so amazing. Yes, still today, there are almost always there is a physical consequence for our sin, but the spiritual consequence, the spiritual death that we deserve has been taken by someone else, someone who was called a son of David and the true Lamb of God. Jesus Christ, the Son of David, the Lamb of God, took for us the spiritual death that we deserved. He nailed it to the cross and took it to the grave. And when Jesus rose again in victory, he rose with the power to remove our stains, to atone for our sins, and to restore us back to God. He rose with the victory and the power to take us from obscurity like David and bring us into his royal kingdom into his kingship the book of hebrews calls us now a royal priesthood like david we've been given a royal and holy mission to be set apart for the advancement of god's kingdom to be on the front lines of the battle to bring those who are living in darkness into the kingdom of light god has called us out of obscurity and into his kingdom through the covenant of Jesus Christ. And he's calling us to live out his kingdom's values and to be about his kingdom's work. To set our eyes on things above, not things below. Not settling for anything less in our lives than his kingdom. And yes, like David, sometimes I think we'll get caught up in some garbage. I think we'll make decisions we regret and have the stain of sin. And like David, we'll recognize that you and I are that man, the one deserving of death. But through the Holy Spirit's confrontation and conviction, through God's invitation to confession, and through Jesus' restoration and taking our consequence, I think like, uh, like little Darnell, huh, we can say, I know, I know, I smell funky. <laughs> 
And like David, we can get on our knees as often as we need to and say, Oh God, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Then I'll teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. I truly pray that it would be so in our lives. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your holy scripture, your word spoken to us in the same way that David had Nathan in his life um, to speak the word of the Lord. We have your word and we have it breathed with the Holy Spirit that can be breathed into our own lives that we can receive uh, what you're trying to say to us when you're wanting to confront us and convict us of sin, when you're wanting to to lead us to a place of being on our knees in confession to you, to others we've wronged, to others in our lives who could be praying for us, and also how you lead us into your amazing, amazing removal of our consequence, (laughs) into your atonement for us, because of what Jesus Christ has done. Because of that covenant that you made through David saying that someone from your throne will sit on the throne forever. And that one was Jesus Christ who would eternally sit on the throne. Jesus Christ, the son of David, who would sacrifice everything for us as our true perfect lamb of God. So Father, on one sense I just pray for us if we have not understood the reality of that, that you would move our hearts to fully understand just what you have done for us, how, you, how much you have done for us, that we wouldn't despise you um, by our actions or, or our attitude of heart, that our attitude of heart would be of praise and thankfulness and receiving that. And on the other side, Lord, just like David prayed in Psalm 51, that then our response, along with gratitude and praise, would be, to see this kingdom come, to recognize that we have been called out of obscurity to be called sons and daughters of the king. And that that also gives us a responsibility to be about your kingdom's values and your kingdom's work. And Father, I ask that you continue to move our hearts, that our hearts would break when we hear of injustice, but that we wouldn't look at it with some sort of false, self-righteous judgment but rather we would look at it and, and recognize that, that the kingdom needs to advance into that darkness. That the light needs to be shined into that darkness. So, Father, for that guy, that terrible guy from that story, that's a real guy somewhere, we pray for him. Father, not that that man, it's true, yes, he deserves death as much as I deserve death. And so, But we pray for him that that he wouldn't receive the punishment he deserves, but that he would receive the atonement, atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And his life would be radically transformed. And Jesus, I know that's a radical thing to pray, and it goes against everything that's in me. But it's not, it doesn't go against what Jesus said, and that's where I want to align my will with Jesus' will, that we would pray for our enemies. We'd pray for those who do evil. And we pray for them that they would come to know a saving relationship in Jesus Christ and turn from darkness. 
that they could be fully redeemed and restored back to a relationship with God the Father. And that's the business that you called us to be about. And Father, I ask that you would continue to have us not just pray for those in our lives, but that you continue to have us actively work toward bringing your kingdom into the lives of those our neighbors and the people we work with and, and family members that don't know you yet and that don't know what it looks like to have a saving relationship in Jesus Christ. And we pray this all in the powerful name of the risen Christ, Jesus. Amen.